learning is the only skill that matters. If you can learn, then you can do anything. And if you can do anything, you can be anything. Welcome to The Lavender Lifestyle, the podcast on personal growth and lifestyle design. My name's Eileen, and I'm here to guide you to become a master artist of life. Every Sunday, you'll get new insight and inspiration on how to create your dream life. After the episode, the conversation continues in our Lavender Lifestyle Facebook group, so I can't wait to see you there. Life is an art. Make it your masterpiece. Hey everyone, welcome back to the Lavender Lifestyle. It's Eileen. Today we're going to talk about accelerated learning, memory, and productivity. So our special guest today is Jonathan Levy. Jonathan is a serial entrepreneur, published author, and life hacker born and raised in Silicon Valley. Since 2014, Jonathan has been one of the top performing instructors on online learning platform Udemy. His company, Superhuman Enterprises, produced the award-winning Becoming Superhuman podcast, the best-selling Become a Super Learner print digital and audiobooks, and numerous other online courses. Jonathan's media products have been enjoyed by over 200,000 people in 203 countries and territories. Hi, Jonathan. Welcome to The Lavender Lifestyle. How are you? I'm fantastic, Eileen. It's such a pleasure to be here. I'm so happy to have you here. So I hear you're an expert at learning, memory, and productivity, right? I am, yeah, but but not by birth, more by trial and error. <laughs> right. I was going to ask you, how does one become an expert at such things? Uh, one suffers through the educational system for many, many years. And then I'm, I'm going to switch to first person voice because I don't know if I can keep the third person for the whole. But uh, <laughs> I, growing up, I was a real mm-hmm. problem student. Uh, I struggled quite a bit. I was tested for learning disabilities. I ended up being put on prescription stimulants, prescription speed just to mm-hmm. get through high school and mm-hmm. college and really, really struggled. And it led to depression, anxiety, bouts of, of suicidal thinking because I was I had such low self-esteem because I was the dumb kid in class and out of class. It, it wasn't just academic learning. It was also, you know, other kids were learning social norms and were learning how to talk to girls. And I, I just couldn't figure this whole thing out. I was in this new, weird, scary place. And, you know, that the, the prescription stimulants got me pretty far. I was able to lock myself in my bedroom and, and just catch up to what I didn't understand in the classroom mm-hmm. every single day. But when I got into business school, I knew that it wasn't going to work because I was doing a 10-month condensed program where I do 80% of the coursework of a two-year program in 10 months. Mm-hmm. And everybody knows you know, business school is more about the networking and the connections and the experience than it is about the academics. And so I knew I wasn't going to be able to just lock myself in my bedroom. And I was very fortunate that at that time I, I met two people who were experts in speed reading and accelerated learning. And so I hired them as private tutors and they taught me they they taught me how to learn, really. And it was all in Hebrew because I was doing an internship in Israel at the time. Wow. And it just blew my mind what I was able to do and it blew the minds of people that I worked with in business school on case studies and during exams. And so after the fiftieth time that people ask you, you know, how do you do that? I said, well, what if I just translated all the materials and recorded some videos and put it online? And five, six years later, we now have over 200,000 students for our Become a Super Learner programs. And I've obviously taken that skill set that I learned and gone deeper and deeper and researched more neuroscience and yeah. interviewed you know, hundreds of experts and really dug deep into the science of learning. 
and what it takes to actually learn more effectively because we believe, I believe, at least life experience has taught me, that learning is the only skill that matters. If you can learn, then you can do anything. And if you can do anything, you can be anything. Yeah, and that's an amazing story because you started out disadvantaged and now look at where you are now. There's a lot of psychological impact from your childhood and growing up. So how did you get out of that? Did accelerating learning help you with that? Or do you still deal with those, I guess, inner things? You know, I, I'm i sure you've had a lot of a lot of thought leaders, quote unquote, thought leaders on the show. And I think we, we all have imposter syndrome to some extent. And I don't think anyone chooses the path that you and I have chose, Eileen, which is putting ourselves out there mm-hmm. and opening up and being vulnerable and, and trying to kind of influence others if we don't have some pain behind it. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I have bouts, but I would say a lot of my insecurities in the past used to have to do with my own self-worth. Mm-hmm. And now they more have to do with comparing myself to, you know, the the giants. Like I, mm-hmm. I'm very fortunate to to spend a lot of my time with People that I admire very, very much, you know, New York Times bestselling authors and billionaires and stuff like that. And uh, and I would say that's where my insecurities come from now. But I yeah. definitely still have them. I, I always love to remind my podcast audience, like just because it sounds like myself and whoever my guest of the week on the show have it figured out. We definitely don't have it figured out. And, and I, you know, one yeah. thing uh, I try to remind people is like. You'll never not have problems. You'll just have better problems. <laughs> oh, totally. It's like you kind of relearn the same lessons, but on a bigger scale or on a, a different way. I've noticed that in my life too. Totally. So you started making courses, teaching other people how to learn fast. And you also mentioned that you're a serial entrepreneur. So what came first and how? what is that story? Yeah. So I've been an entrepreneur for as long as I can remember. The first time I showed any entrepreneurial inclination was at four years old when I came to my parents and I told my mom was doing boutique costumes for theater productions. And I came to her and I was like, you should pay me to market this. And I'm going to start my own company where I'm going to try on all this stuff and market it and do like essentially what was guerrilla marketing for her. I didn't know the term at the Mm -hmm. time. And I started a bunch of quote unquote businesses throughout my life, you know, bottling the aloe vera in my parents' backyard and trying to sell it to people in the sun for or for sunburns during the summer. Yeah. And I had a, a DJing company where we did local school dances, a web design company where we designed corporate websites. And nothing really, really took off until I was 16. Mm-hmm. Uh, when I was 16, I started a luxury car parts company. And I grew that into one of the 5,000 fastest growing companies in America Wow! uh, and sold it in 2011 and then did a whole bunch of other stuff to try to do a bigger startup and a bigger venture backed company and none of that worked. And then I ended up here doing what I do now. So I've actually, believe it or not, (laughs) Eileen, I've never had a real job. I've done some internships here and there with like VC firms or companies that were mentoring me, but I've actually never gotten a paycheck that I haven't signed myself. Oh, yeah. Wow. Okay, when you gloss over your life story, it just sounds so random. Like, how did you land in luxury car parts and this and that? It's so, I guess, random. And how do you even grow things like that? So with people out there who are like pulling their hairs out, trying to become entrepreneurs, what are your main lessons to share with them? Yeah, well, I'll tell you the God's honest truth. The reason, so I became an entrepreneur most likely because I didn't have another really good example. By the time I was Mm -hmm. like six or seven years old, my dad got 
tired of commuting all the way up to San Francisco from the Silicon Valley. And so he started his own brokerage. And my mom had been a salaried employee at, at like Sun and Xerox and a lot of really, really big companies. But when I was born, she took a break and then she started her own business. Mm. Uh, again, making like boutique costumes for theater productions and all kinds of like handmade mm-hmm. goods. So all my examples around me were entrepreneurs, okay. uh, the vast majority of them. That makes sense. And so I kind of just thought, yeah, when when I need money to buy a new bike, I just start a company. My my best friend as well, next door neighbor, who today is also a Y Combinator entrepreneur, his father was also an entrepreneur. So we kind of just thought that's what mm-hmm. you do to make money yeah. <laughs> is you start businesses. Yeah. And my only foray into trying it the quote unquote other way, I had I've had two job interviews in my life. One of them was at Togo's, and I was told that I am not Togo's material, unfortunately. (laughs) And the other one was at Jamba Juice, and I was an hour late to the interview. So I just went home and I started a multi-million dollar business because I realized like I'm a square peg in a round hole. Right. In my story, I relate to that because I never really fit in with any of the internships I did. And if you can't find yourself fitting into any company or any office culture, just create your own. Totally. Totally. I, I believe that right. we as, as entrepreneurs, we start businesses and we work harder and we take on much more stress than salaried employees. And that's fine because that's a choice that we make. But if you do that, yeah. you need to get something in return. So you either need to get more money, more freedom, more enjoyment, more purpose. And when I say freedom, it mm-hmm. means freedom of hours, freedom of productivity, as in I only work on the things that I want to work on, freedom of association. I only work with the people I want to work with. I'm married to someone who's on the the salaried employee track. She likes being a salaried employee. And it's just, it's been so interesting for me over the years, like observing actually how much freedom entrepreneurs have on the one hand that, you know, Mm -hmm. if, if I don't like this person who sits across from me, I just fire them. You know, whereas when you're a salaried employee, it doesn't work that way. But also how much more stress we have. So it really is a trade off. And and it really is like she's able to just disconnect. And so Mm -hmm. it's a trade off. But I, I like to remind entrepreneurs, make sure that you're getting what you pay for in that bargain. Oh, for sure. And and people looking at either side, the grass can be greener on the other side because entrepreneurs oh God, are yes. so stressed. They're like, oh, my God, it'd be so nice to clock out at five and not worry about work. Oh, my God. But then yes. on the other hand, you know, people dream of becoming entrepreneurs. But anyway, as long as you're happy with your side, that's all that matters. Totally. I mean, entrepreneurs have among the highest suicide rates of any profession. That's really sad to hear. I didn't know that. It is. It is. And and <laughs> I dentists, it was dentists, I think, have a slightly yeah. higher. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Dentists are slightly higher, but entrepreneurs have an incredibly high suicide rate. And entrepreneurs are the rock stars of our generation. And mm-hmm. just think about, like, how many rock stars aged well, right? So that, that mm-hmm. metaphor works in, in each way, right? We're also glorified. We're in the news. People want to be like entrepreneurs. But... That, that comes at a huge cost. I actually have an idea for a podcast, which I haven't gotten around to doing, but it's, it's, an, it's a podcast just featuring only entrepreneurs who put life first because I'm so sick of this mm. um, stigma, right? Like the, the Gary Vaynerchuk. Where you're hustling and, and, too hard. Yeah, right? exactly. Hustling yeah. so hard that your eyes bleed. It's not about that. Like that's, that's not, not why I became an entrepreneur, at least. Yeah, I'm on the like do it at your own pace, live a balanced and fulfilled life. And you don't have to go so fast. That That's what I'm about. A hundred percent. A hundred percent. Because, you know, you burn out otherwise. <laughs> totally. 
now I want to like dive deep into your knowledge and expertise because I, I want you to share the good stuff with us. So accelerated learning, what are the tips, the ones that you've shared over and over again on how we can learn faster? Yeah, great. So a few different things and, and I've changed the way that I teach this over the years and, and recently I've rewritten an entire book on this and I, I've it's kind of influenced the way, I mean, after you have 200,000 people go through your materials, you have a lot of data to work from. And so mm-hmm. it's influenced the way that I think about this. And and before where I, where I used to say it's all about visual mnemonics and learning how to use your memory, I now realize that it's it's a bigger picture. And it all starts with proper preparation, right? Because I'll tell you a story and then we'll get into the nuts and bolts. So a few years ago, I decided I wanted to learn Russian because it's a harder language. I already speak Latin language, a Germanic language, and a Semitic language. So I wanted a new group of languages. And I just dove in straight with memory techniques and started memorizing. And I learned 1,100 words in the first two months. And I learned basic grammar. And then I got to Russia to hang out with some friends. Basic stuff. I I looked at a Citibank advertisement and I couldn't figure out why always with you, always for you. They use two different words for you. And I had this oh crap Mm -hmm. moment because I hadn't zoomed out and taken the big picture and realized the Slavic grammatical system is so different that there's six different ways to say the word you. And, and another six for the formal version. I didn't know the basic mm-hmm. difference between entrance, vhod, and exit, vhod. Sounds almost the same. So I realized like I had not done the proper preparation, structuring out and figuring out what were going to be my goals, what was I going to learn when, what was the proper order in which to learn things. And because of that, to this day, like I know weird words like trubka, which is mm-hmm. tube, like industrial tubing, but I don't know the word for like discomfort which is kind of an important word, right? So the first step is really to plan out and structure. What are the things that I need to know? Why am I learning this piece of information? What is going to be my study schedule? And what am I going to do when inevitably I fall off track? Because we're all subject to something psychologists lovingly call the what the hell effect, which is if I miss one study session, ah, what the hell, I'll miss the rest of the week. Mm, So how are you going to get yourself back on track when, not if, when life happens. Mm -hmm. And once you have that, you're much more set up for success. The added beauty of doing that work, even if it's just writing down a journal entry, is you're doing a lot of the fundamentals that prime the human brain, the adult brain at least, for learning, right? You're instilling pressing need. You're kind of demonstrating to the brain that this is useful knowledge. And you're, you're really setting yourself up for success by breaking things down into manageable units. So preparation is one of the best things. A lot of people dive in to a new learning subject at what looks like the beginning without actually planning. And so the the metaphor I like to use is, you know, before you cut down a tree, sharpen the ax. You don't try to take Mm -hmm. down the whole forest at once. Totally. And what do you personally do like when you're planning what to do when you fall off? Like, what are the ways to get back into it? Yeah, so I like to do accountability systems. I think they're really, really important. So I'll talk to people in my life. I'll try to get study buddies, for example. So right now, one of the things I'm learning is real estate investment. And I want to start in getting into commercial real estate investment. So I have a lot of learning to do. So what I'm doing is I'm recruiting people to kind of take an interest in my progress by including them and saying, you know, as I find stuff out, I'll share it with you and share it with me and and creating this accountability where now I feel like if I fall off the wagon, 
someone any day might message me and go, hey, whatever happened with that apartment building you wanted to buy? And I'll be like, yeah. ah. So having that social pressure is really, really good. And breaking things down, right? So in the past, what I might have done is just set aside two days and just gone deep, deep, deep and learned everything that I could. That's what I did with Russian. Now I set aside, you know, at the end of every workday, I'm going to sit and read 20 or 30 minutes about a concept that I feel I don't know enough about. And what I'll do is I'll consistently highlight topics, right? So mm -hmm. I, sometimes I like to think of learning as the way that you would step up a staircase, right? You can't always step up just with the left leg and you can't always step up with the right leg. You have to do a little left leg and a little right leg and that's how you get to the top. And oftentimes you'll find that learning works this way. So for example, grammar. Uh, if all you do is study grammar of a new language, you're trying to hop up the steps with your left leg and you're kind of handicapped by the fact that you haven't used the right leg, which is vocabulary. So you really have to go back and forth. You learn mm -hmm. a little bit of vocabulary, enough to create basic sentences, then you immediately need to switch to the left leg and learn grammar. So it's kind of this left, right, left, right, left, right. And what I did when I tried to learn Russian, for example, was I just went deep, deep, deep into vocabulary. And I ended up, you know, clumsily mm -hmm. hopping up the stairs on only my right leg because I didn't know how to connect these 1100 words. So I think the same is true with a lot of different things, right? If you're learning about real estate, you can go and learn all these different terms, you know, like what is ROE and what is a uh, cash on cash return and what, you know, all this crazy stuff. But if you learn that and you don't learn to get a feel for markets, for example, like how do I assess a market? What, how do I determine if a property is actually worth investing in? What do I need to know about contracting and construction? Then you end up being a theorist, you know, you can give the numbers and you know what everything mm -hmm. means, but you don't actually have practical, useful knowledge. In some sense, like the actual yeah. feel, and, and real estate may not be the best example, but the actual feel for the subject matter is the grammar in this case. And so you have to go back and forth. So I'm always doing that check-in and going, okay, great. Now I know, you know, what a cap rate means, but have I taken the time to actually learn about different markets and what makes a market good and what makes a market risky. Right. So you, you just need a holistic picture of everything. And totally. I mean, does this translate into like your method of reading faster? I mean, how do you read more books in more time? Because I know a lot of our listeners want to read books, have a huge reading list, but it's hard to, I guess, get through everything. It just feels endless. Totally. So the first thing we need to do if we want to upgrade our reading speed is we need to upgrade our memory. The metaphor that I like to use is if you have a bucket, a funnel, and a hose, uh, and it's a standard garden hose, and you switch out that hose for a fire hose, your infrastructure, your funnel, and your bucket are not going to be sustainable. So first you need to upgrade the bucket, which is your long-term memory. Then you need to upgrade the funnel, which is your short-term memory. And only then can you upgrade the hose. So in our courses, we actually spend four weeks just training people on mnemonic techniques. And when I say mnemonic techniques, I'm not talking about, you know, the PEMDAS that you learned in uh, algebra class or singing a song like you learned to do, you know, your ABCs. I'm talking about visual mnemonic systems that are being used to set world records and win memory championships. So it actually turns out, Eileen, that although we all think that we're tactile kinesthetic learners or auditory learners, we're actually hardwired to be visual learners. And this is because over millions of years of evolution... And you say that about everyone? 
Well, so I, I'll put it with an asterisk, which right. is we're all naturally hardwired to be visual learners, but mm-hmm. our education system kind of breaks that. And the human brain is an adaptation machine. You can adapt to anything. You know, I once saw an organ player at a church and he had played organ for 40 years. And so his natural posture was just like an R. His entire body was curved over and arced to play Mm -hmm. this machine that was invented in the 1500s before ergonomics was a thing. So as humans, we're perfect at adapting ourselves to whatever is thrown our way. So when you're sat in a classroom for the first 20 years of your life and you're lectured at, and there's very little, if any, visual stimulation. I mean, you can probably list on one hand the times where you learned visually in a classroom. It's like we all had to dissect, you know, a bullfrog or a pig fetus. And that was a visual representation of biology. But when you learned about history, you read about it in a textbook. You know, when you Mm -hmm. learned about cellular biology, you got occasionally a picture here or there. But for the most part, you learned about it in a textbook or being lectured at and on and on and on and on. So our education system is, is very auditory because that's a very efficient way to teach a lot of people. It's not the most effective way. So what we do in our courses is we retrain people to discover their natural aptitude for visual memory. Now, over millions and millions of years, there were certain senses that gave us a survival advantage and certain senses that do not. The most memorable sense of all is scent. Very confusing. Taste and smell are very okay. memorable because that's a huge survival advantage to taste something and go, wait a minute, this tastes rancid. I remember the last time I ate something like this and it almost killed me. Right. The next one is visual. You know, where did I bury the winter food supply? What was the, the tree that I buried it under? What's the neighboring tribe that's friendly versus the neighboring tribe that's going to try and skin me? Is this snake poisonous or not poisonous? So we know that that native peoples can remember thousands of plants and animal species around them. And it's because visual memory is so highly developed for them. And a corollary of that is we're also really good at location. You can actually remember probably the last 20 hotel rooms you stayed in, what the layout was, what was on the bedside next to on the bedside table. You remember every office you've ever worked in. You remember half the classrooms you studied in. Your brain does this naturally as a survival advantage. When you go into a new space, there's a a unique hormonal mix of dopamine that goes through the CA3 region of the brain and into the locus coeruleus, and it just heightens your memory. So you can remember every grocery store you shop in, including the one that you only sometimes stop on the way home from work when there's a lot of traffic. So about 2,500 years ago, humans discovered this and realized that If we use this to our advantage, we can do incredible feats of memory. So the first step to upgrading your memory is learning to visualize everything that you want to remember. And there are techniques for converting names and faces, numbers, Bible verses, whatever it is that you want to memorize into pictures and and advanced kind of complex, bizarre, strange, violent, sexual pictures at that because that's what is novel and unique to our brains. Mm-hmm. Let's a- apply this. Yeah, so when absolutely. you're reading a book and you want to remember something, it, it, do you just make a mental note? Okay, let me pair this with a visual in my head. I mean, I kind of... Exactly. Okay, okay. What you're reminding me of is, have you seen Sherlock Holmes where he yeah. has like a mental map of like where he keeps certain information? Is that what you do? Exactly. <laughs> Exactly. So that's, oh, that's, that's a real thing. Yeah, that's so yeah, weird. Yeah, that's a real thing. 
So I don't do that for everything because it's called the memory palace technique or method of yes. Losi. And yeah. I like to call it the mnemonic nuclear option because it's okay. kind of like showing up to a water gun fight with a ICBM. Uh, it's massively overkill. That's the kind of technique that people use to win world memory championships. Mm. But <laughs> if you want to memorize things in order, so for books, for example, what I'll do is I'll create mental pictures. I won't remember all of them, but over time, they'll kind of merge into complex images because really when you read a book, you want to remember five to 10 key ideas. You don't need to remember every single detail of every single story. So over time, you form these mental images which represent those five key ideas. But for things that you want to memorize perfectly in order, for example, if you're studying for the MCAT or you're giving a TED Talk, you want to use the memory palace. And that's a, actually a real technique where you take these images, once you've learned how to create these images effectively for everything you want to remember, you put them in locations in actual spaces that you have memorized. So an example mm -hmm. would be, let's say I'm learning all of the words, you know, the, the 1500 basic words in Mandarin. I would have a whole memory palace for verbs and uh. I would create these visualizations. I would have a whole memory palace for nouns and I would create the visualization. And a nice little hack that I like to do is actually placing things where they would be in the memory palace. So let's say I use my childhood home for verbs. Well, then wherever my parents used to keep the chopping board, I would put the verb for chop there. Oh. Wherever I, the, the word for burn, I might put that on the left stove, the left burner. Wherever yeah. the verb for cook, I might put that where the oven is or bake. And so I can develop all these. And then I can use random locations as well, right? Like uh, yeah. the word for put, I could just put that on the shelves where we keep the plates. And you start filling that out. And that, that's a little kind of adaptation hack that I've come up with. Uh, I've invented very little of this because this technique really has been around for 2,500 mm -hmm. years. But yeah. what's nice about that is if I don't remember what the verb for cook is in Mandarin, I just go to that right burner or that oven or wherever I put it, and I see what is the picture there. Now, I want to give people an example of when I say a picture, we can do a really fun one, a really easy one that, that just works out perfectly. So I always use it as an example. Um, caber, C-A-B-E-R, in Spanish is to fit. It's kind of a tricky word because caber doesn't sound like fit. It's like, you know, it sounds mm -hmm. like open. If you speak Spanish, you think like, it's, it kind of sounds like abrir, which is open. So mm -hmm. anyway, I want everyone to picture a taxi cab. It can be any taxi cab you want. It can be a New York taxi cab, those old uh, Chevys or Fords that they used to use. It can be, in mine, it's, it's a Russian Lada in Moscow, you know, those really boxy Soviet cars. Now, I want you to picture in the right window of that cab as it's zooming, there's a huge grizzly bear, and he's just stuffed into that cab, and his head is poking out. So he's been forced to fit into the cab, and he's a bear, cab with a bear, cab bear. Oh, I see. Yeah. And that's, it's a, you see, what's great about that image is it includes the sounds, cab, bear. It includes the actual meaning of the word, fit. And it's outrageous and ridiculous. And it uses pre-existing images and knowledge. So it creates connections to the knowledge we already have. Because that's one of the key fundamentals of accelerated learning is you have to connect everything, no matter how seemingly obscure it is, connect it to existing knowledge. 
Because we know Mm -hmm. from Hebb's law that neurons that wire together fire together. In other words, the more densely connected a new piece of knowledge is to existing knowledge, the more our brains pay attention. In in a sense, it's actually the same way that Google works. Google was so revolutionary in the 1990s because instead of just scanning the web and presenting the results, Google created this algorithm called PageRank, which goes, what is this web page connected to? And how important are those other web pages that it's connected to? And based on that, I can determine how important. It, what's crazy is that's almost exactly how your brain works. If you mm-hmm. were to discover some crazy detail right now about you know, your parents, like, oh my gosh, I never knew that my dad played the clarinet for 10 years when he was a kid. That's connected to a very important piece of knowledge, which is things I know about my father. And you would never forget it. Yeah. But if you were to meet someone new, talk to them for five minutes and they would tell you something about themselves, you might not remember it because it's not connected to something that's valuable or or relevant. So a lot of times one of the mistakes that people make when they learn something is they treat it as a new subject and mentally they tell themselves, you know, oh my gosh, I'm learning this new word in uh, Urdu and I don't know any words in Urdu. So this is all new. Instead of asking, how is this similar to what I already know, Mm -hmm. and thereby tricking the brain into going, wait a minute, this might be important. This is connected to Mm. something. So the point is you have to connect every new thing that you learn with something that you already know. That's important. At least one thing. Absolutely. Do you find that this takes up a lot of time to create like a visual connection for everything that you learn, or does it actually make you learn faster? It makes you learn a lot faster and you have to do a lot less review. It takes time for people (laughs) to develop this skill because it's a muscle that hasn't been used. But the human brain can recognize an image in 0.013 seconds, 13 milliseconds. Oh, I believe it. We're very, very fast at, at identifying images. And we're also very fast at imagining images. I mean, everyone knows the example when someone says, don't think of a pink elephant. And immediately a pink elephant comes into mind. Mm-hmm. So yeah. once you can develop this skill, it becomes instantaneous. What will you do for your dreams in 2019? Introducing the Artist of Life Workbook and Daily Planner by Lavendaire, tools to help you create your best year in 2019. If you love journaling, self-discovery, creativity, and productivity, these are perfect for you. Filled with 125 pages of questions and exercises, the 2019 Artist of Life Workbook walks you through reflecting on your past year, setting goals and intentions for the new year, discovering yourself, staying committed to your goals, and tracking your progress monthly. The Daily Planner by Lavendaire is a tool to help you design a productive, effective, and meaningful day. The Artist of Life Workbook helps you plan a macro view of your life, while the Daily Planner helps you plan the micro. Together, these tools will help you build your dream life one page at a time. They're seriously life-changing and they make great gifts too. Go to shop.lavendaire.com to check them out. Sending you so much light. Okay, I know you are a wealth of knowledge, but I do want to ask you about productivity because I want to know what are the like strategies, your favorite productivity tips that you use in your life? Like when you're tackling a huge project that's overwhelming, you're procrastinating, like what, what are those tips. Yeah. So uh, first off, mushroom coffee. (laughs) Okay. I really, really like mushroom coffee as a a natural alternative, but I'm mostly kidding, but not not (laughs) kidding. Really, really great stuff with the lion's mane. I call it nature's Adderall. But the truth of the matter is most of my productivity hacks and strategies don't actually have to do with doing things more efficiently because I believe 
you can do things efficiently, but if you're doing the wrong things, it's not actually going to be more productive. If you look at the definition of the word productive, it's productive output. Are you producing? Are you creating? So I often like to tell people you can get really, really efficient at ironing socks. It's not going to make you any better at doing laundry. Right? It's not going to get you to your goal any oh, faster. Sure. Yeah. So a lot of what I do, I teach something I like to call attention management because I don't believe time management works. I think time management is like dieting, right? Like we're, we're not wired mm-hmm. to manage our time, quote unquote, just like we're not wired to say, okay, I've eaten enough. I'm going to just stop eating even though I'm still hungry, right? You're fighting against millions of years of evolution. So I practice what's called attention management, which is kind of stopping all the distraction and eliminating willpower from the productivity equation. One of my buddies is uh, Benjamin Hardy, and he wrote a great book called Willpower Doesn't Work. And we totally hit it off because when I read his book and I heard his lectures, I was like, ah, yeah, that's what I've been doing. It's taking willpower out of the equation. So some of the best productivity Mm -hmm. hacks that I teach sound so simple, but it's like install rescue time on your computer so that when you inevitably go on Facebook and browse and are messing around, it just locks you out. So willpower is no longer mm-hmm. an issue. Like yesterday I got to a point, my, my rescue time wasn't configured properly and I was researching real estate and I was doing that on different blogs and forums and stuff like that. So it was productive, but rescue time thought that I was messing around and it just locked me out. Destructive time. Yeah, it was like yeah. you're on a forum and a blog, <laughs> so it just locked me out. Yeah. And it got to the point that- I use that too, so I know. Oh, I love it. And it got to the point where the only thing yeah. I could do was like work on spreadsheets and write. So I had to like go in and configure mm-hmm. the settings and be like, no, actually like this blog is educational and I'm actually being productive. But you know, yeah. it, it's incredibly, incredibly valuable. Putting your phone on do not disturb, right? Managing your attention. Mm-hmm. One of the things I think people don't realize is over the last 10 years, we none of us agreed to this, but we all became available to everyone all the time. And socially, it became unacceptable to not be available. And if, if you watch mm-hmm. like an old episode of of Friends or Seinfeld, it was like, if someone wasn't there in the room, and they weren't answering the phone, they were not available and no one expected them to be available. And maybe they were at the office and maybe you know they told their secretary to hold calls. But today it's like, if you don't answer every WhatsApp message within 20 minutes, people think you're dead. And, and the issue yeah. is, is every minor disruption we have, even if it's a simple buzz in our pocket, breaks our focus and takes us out of the flow state. And it takes us at least 15 minutes to get into the flow state. And we know that in order to mm-hmm. really, really get productive work done, you need a chunk of three to four hours to, to get into your heightened creativity state. We also know that people are happier in a proportional relationship to the time they spend in flow. The more time you're in flow, and, and when I talk about flow, I'm not just talking about you know being in the zone. It's, it's actually a mentally unique state of, of kind of balanced neurochemicals that's completely unlike any other state the human brain can get into. It's when your time stands still and you're just completely focused on the task at hand. And you're, yeah. McKinsey did a study and people in flow are not one time more effective, not 50% more effective. They're five times more effective when in the flow state. The problem is most people mm-hmm. never get into that flow state. So the first thing is eliminating all distraction. And I've you know, this is another thing that over the years I've had to emphasize this more than the other tips and tricks that I teach because it's become so much mm-hmm. more important. Like we now all have watches that are just designed to distract us. Yeah. You know, we get all our text messages on our wrists all the time and it's crazy. 
<laughs> so that's one of my key ones. And then the other one is is structuring and just knowing what is going to move you forward. So I use a lot of different frameworks when I'm thinking about a problem or thinking about tasks to ask myself, what is the right thing to be doing in the right order? Because if you set the tasks up in the right order, you create momentum and the dominoes kind of knock each other down. Whereas if you do things in a kind of random order, you're not creating momentum or, mm -hmm. or progress. So I spend a lot of time thinking about what is the one thing that I can do first that's going to make everything else easier? And what is the inherent value of the task that I'm working on right now? And this comes back to when we talked about learning, which is sitting down before you just dive into a task and, you know, kind of like go crazy like in a buffet. Sit down and ask yourself, okay, what do I want to accomplish here? What's going to be the right order in which to do these things? And what is going to be my plan of attack? How am I going to course correct when things go awry and on and on and on right and yeah. so I, I use a lot of different tools uh, I really like the Eisenhower decision matrix for evaluating the the worth and value of tasks and then only focusing on tasks that are trying to focus as much on tasks that are important but not urgent oh, because totally. those are actually you'll find the things that are much more valuable Totally. You have to strategize and think ahead. And I like that. Like, Focus on the things that are important, not urgent. Exactly. Because the things that are important and urgent will start to disappear when you spend more and more of your time strategizing and thinking ahead. And obviously, the things that are not important but urgent, you can get rid of. And the things that are not important and not urgent, we all should try to do less of. Totally. And you just inspired me that whenever I work, I, I have to put my phone like in another room. And you know how you have like iMessage on your laptop? I, mm -hmm. I need to find a way to turn that off because I hate when messages come in while I'm working. It really is just like it takes your attention away. Yeah. So I have a couple tips for that. For the phone, if it's a real temptation for you, and I also like it because it's just a nice psychological block. I use a product sometimes called KSafe. It's actually designed for the kitchen for people like who, you know, can't help but go into the cookies. But it's basically <laughs> a, a safe lockbox with a timer on it. So wow. you can set it to an hour <laughs> or a week and then you just hit the button and that's it. Like there's no there's oh no gosh. phone. Oh my gosh. That's bye so bye funny. Phone. Yeah, people can check it out uh, <laughs> at jle.vi/ksafe. K safe. Awesome. Yeah. All right. So we got some Facebook questions from our Facebook group, but I'm just going to ask a couple. So one, Louisa asked, how do you fight laziness? Do you deal with mm. laziness? Because you seem like you're super productive. So I do fight laziness all the time. And uh, my, my opinions on this have changed over the years. And everything I'm going to say right now is you're going to be like, oh, yeah, that's pretty obvious. But it works. A uh, couple different yeah. things. One, the, the basics, right? Like making sure that my body and brain are properly nourished. So exercise helps me. Meditation helps me. Making sure my nutrition is is right is going to give me the right mental energy. That that with me is like just it's the buy-in, right? It's the absolute basics. Mm -hmm. So I don't even count. Foundation. It. Yeah, it's foundational yeah. stuff. Recently, I've really discovered the power of connecting to your why. And I'll tell you why. <laughs> I'll tell you why, why. Mm -hmm. uh, I host a mastermind where every month I bring in a top thought leader and we do a challenge, whatever that person is. So uh, this coming month, we have Hal Elrod teaching Miracle Morning, Miracle Equation. Yeah. We've had uh, elimination challenges. We had Ariel Garten, founder of Muse, do a meditation challenge. We had Ben Hardy do a willpower elimination challenge. And what I realized after six months of doing this challenge with people from vastly different walks of life, but all who have spent a decade or more teaching what they teach 
every single challenge the first week was connecting deeply to their why. Like, why am I doing this challenge? And I realized I do the same thing in my courses. The first activity is having people free write and journal. Why do I need to learn faster? What are times where I felt inadequate? What are times where I've wished that I could learn more? What have I missed out in life? And it really connects to, it's like all of these people have organically figured out the same thing that Malcolm Knowles, one of the first researchers on how the adult brain works, figured out, which is like the adult brain in order to be motivated and attuned and focused needs to understand what the actual tangible benefit is going to be because we don't want to waste our time. As adults, we've wasted our time before. We don't like it. And we have so much to do. We want to know that it's going to be valuable. So I've realized that just by connecting to my why, and I actually had a podcast guest on my show who gave me this like, oh my God, why didn't I think of that? Every single day, you know what you're supposed to be doing that day. And maybe you write it out on a checklist. Maybe it's in your task management software. But uh, you know, I'm already journaling pretty much every day. It's one of the things Ben Hardy got me into on what are my goals? What are my dreams? You know, what am I feeling? What am I grateful for? Just add in two lines about why you're going to do whatever it is you need to do. And it changes everything, Eileen. Mm -hmm. Like I even do that on the weekends where it's like, okay, today I'm going to have a family dinner. Why? Like why? Because spending time with my family enriches my life and da, 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 da. And it, it just changes the way your brain it's, it's like gratitude journaling, you know, which has been scientifically proven to rewire your brain. It, it, it turns on the reticular activator and, and makes you focus on things that you should be grateful and happy for. This also rewires the motivation circuitry. And don't quote me on that because I don't have a, a research mm-hmm. paper to quote. But from my experience, it just changes the motivation circuitry. And I feel so much more energized about whatever it is I need to do because I know why I'm doing it. And I think a lot of times yeah. we have that why. It's just this fuzzy, obscure, like, yeah, this is going to make my company grow or it's going to be good for my kids, but actually writing out like today I'm taking my kids to soccer practice and I'm going to be a super attentive father and I'm going to be there and I'm going to cheer them on because having the support of their father makes them healthier, happier and more engaged. And because this time is precious and I never know, you know, when I'll have the opportunity to do this again. It's like all of a sudden, totally different ball game when you go to that soccer match. Uh, totally. So that's one of the things that, that keeps me motivated. And the other thing is um, I really try not to do things that don't inspire me because I think one of, the, one of the key foundations of attention management is find out what you're really good at and delegate everything else and, and what you're really good at and what you enjoy. And then if I don't enjoy it, I try to delegate it out. So one of the things that keeps me motivated is I know that if I'm not good at something, and, and of course, I can always learn. That's not the point. It's if I'm not passionate about something, I'm not good about it. And if it's something that I can delegate out, I delegate it out. So I have zero motivation for finding the right properties to invest in. It's just, it's not something I enjoy doing. I'm not good at it and I don't want to learn it. So I delegate it out so that the things that are left for me are exciting and engaging. And I think um, more and more people should try to do that wherever possible. I know it, it's, it's hard if you're you know, a salaried employee, but there are ways that if you're working in a team, you can say, hey, you know, you're really good at the data entry part of this. I'm much better at the analysis part. Why don't we switch? And you know, you'll go ahead and, and make sure that the data is all entered in. And it seems to me like you don't like the analysis part. Can I do that for you? And in all my coaching programs, you know, I'm, I'm in uh, Dan Sullivan's strategic coach. This is what makes the difference between high-performing teams and not high-performing teams. It's 
are people doing only the things that motivate, inspire, and engage them versus kind of the old school way of, well, that's just part of the job. You have to do it. Exactly. Like, I I agree. And in an ideal world, everyone's doing only what motivates and inspires them. Totally. And that doesn't necessarily mean, you know, only things that you're good at at first. Like, I really suck at, at playing the piano. Like, I... I'm not very good. I shouldn't say I really suck, but I really enjoy it and I enjoy learning. So it's not about, it's not about, well, only do things you're good at, but it is about only do things that gives you passion. Things that you enjoy. Yeah, absolutely. It's like the Marie Kondo of productivity, right? Like, does this spark joy? And if it does not, then delegate it. Because here's what I realized, Eileen, that like blew my mind. I used to feel really bad. I, I have a lot of really wonderful people all over the world, but specifically in the Philippines, doing administrative tasks, email, like stuff that I don't want to do. Uh, mm-hmm. Customer service, like I've realized they're much nicer than I am. Not that I'm like a total <laughs> jerk, but yeah. you know, I don't do the whole like, oh my gosh, I'm so sorry. I just be like, hey, reset your password. Yeah, they're like, yeah, oh yeah. my gosh, I'm so sorry that this happened. Let me walk you through, you know. Mm-hmm. So, and I used to like have this intrinsic guilt about that. Like, I'm giving, I'm dumping on them all the stuff that I don't want to do, like organizing the files on our Google Drive or like reworking this PDF document. And then a huge moment for me in my coaching program was someone going, well, what if someone else took away from you the stuff that you love to do in the sense that, you know, you love to do the strategic brand building stuff. What if someone else took that away from you? And that's what you're doing to someone who, you know, there are people who just love creating order and it's like therapeutic for them to rename files. There are people, I have a woman on my team who just loves the numbers. She loves accounting. She's been an accountant for 25 years and she loves it. So every time I enter in an invoice, I'm taking away joy from her. And that was like this whole, like, (laughs) you know what, these, like, I need to stop thinking. I like looking at it that way. Well, yeah, and it's true too, because like, I have a member of my team, Brandon, who loves to write email copy. And I used to feel bad when I used to go, hey, Brandon, I, uh, you know, I, I worked up this deal with this partner and we're going to do an affiliate webinar and it's going to be great and da, 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 like write all the copy. I used to feel bad because I just dumped on him five to 10 emails that I don't want to write for myself. But Brandon loves writing email copy. He loves it. And so I, you know, but if I were doing that myself, I'm literally taking stuff that gives him joy and passion off his plate. And I think you'd be surprised, mm-hmm. like, there are people who who love cleaning, you know, cleaning your office building. Like there are people who really enjoy it because it's active and it keeps their body moving and they really like the satisfaction of looking at a clean, sparkling, clean floor. So it's like I try to imagine that it, in a free market, there's someone who loves doing every task that I don't love doing. It's hard to remember that, but I need to constantly remind myself because otherwise I feel guilty when I say, hey, this this whole folder is a mess. Can you rename all the files? I don't think you need to feel guilty at all. (laughs) It's fine. (laughs) Let's move on to the rapid fire questions because I always ask my guests these questions at the end. So just answer with whatever's off the top of your mind. Love it. What does your dream life look like? So my dream life looks like, I have to admit, a, a fair bit of luxury and comfort. I've kind of realized that like money is no good in my life unless it's used to improve my quality of life and the quality of life of those around me. It doesn't serve me any purpose in the bank. Freedom of movement, freedom of productivity, and only working on things that I want to work on. So essentially, we didn't get to the passive income topic, but having enough passive income that I never have to make decisions based on the money that I'll earn from them. Mm-hmm, for sure. What is one book or resource that you recommend to everybody? 
Almost everybody, I recommend A New Earth by Eckhart Tolle. Mm, But everybody, everybody, I recommend Dale Carnegie's uh, How to Win Friends and Influence People. That's a classic. What is one habit that's changed your life? Journaling. Recently, Ben Hardy got me into journaling. And I used to think that it just wasn't for me. But that five to ten minutes in the morning of just taking a step back, documenting what went well, documenting what didn't go well, and... Uh, reflecting on the things that I'm grateful for, why I'm doing what I'm doing, has really changed my life. Awesome. I love journaling. I do it every day. What is the best life or career advice you've ever gotten? Work on things that you're passionate about. Solve problems that you can't coexist with. When things get tough, money is not going to motivate you through that, but purpose will. Mm, Awesome. And the last one, finish the sentence. The most amazing part about life is... I'd have to say learning new things. I love it. That, that really suits you and your personality. So lastly, Jonathan, where can we find you online? Oh my gosh, there's a long list. I know. Where, where are we going to drive people? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I guess I would say if people want to check out learning and accelerated learning, they can go to memory.school. And if they want to check out my podcast, they can go to superhuman.blog. Awesome. Thank you so much, Jonathan. It was so nice to have you on. I wish we could like talk for longer, but this was already a really great podcast. So thank you. Oh, the pleasure was all mine. Let's do it again soon. All right. I hope you enjoyed that interview with Jonathan Levy. Make sure to check out his podcast and his online courses. He has some pretty great stuff, a lot of knowledge out there. So to wrap up what I took away from this interview was number one, memory techniques and the mind palace. I've heard of this before, but I've never really used it. I've never practiced it. So this is something completely new to me. And it is really interesting. I mean, what I learned today is if you want to remember something new that you're learning, whether you're reading it in a book, or in a podcast or something, connect that new information with a visual and connect it with something that you already know and value. Just find a way to make a connection in your brain as the more connections, the better, because then you can really, really remember it. Another thing I really liked was it's not about time management, it's attention management. That was huge. We all want to get into flow state where we are in the zone, being super productive, working at our fullest capacity. The thing that keeps us from getting into flow are distractions. So you want to remove all distractions and also remove the need for willpower. And I like that he said that willpower doesn't work because you can't just rely on willpower to like start again. Sometimes you just get distracted and you just go down a rabbit hole and willpower doesn't work there so the app that we talked about that i use as well is called rescue time and that app tracks the amount of time you spend on productive websites or productive apps versus distracting websites or unproductive apps another thing i'm going to implement is when i'm working to put my phone in another room or turn it on do not disturb mode because messages do distract me And when you get those disruptions, it takes 15 minutes to get back into flow if you even get back into it at all. The last thing that's worth mentioning is when you are feeling lazy, unmotivated, a good way to find your motivation for doing things is to remind yourself why you're doing them. It sounds simple, but it really works. And I like his tip of 
doing that while journaling because I love to journal. I journal every day and I hope that you're journaling often as well. So when you're journaling, you usually talk about what you want to do and your plans. So as you're sharing your plans and writing those down, just take a few sentences to write down why you're doing that. That's going to really help you trigger more spark and motivation for what you have to do. That's it for today's episode and I'll talk to you next time. All right, that's it for today's episode. Thank you so much for listening to The Lavender Lifestyle. If you like this podcast, please show your support by leaving a review on iTunes. Next, make sure you check out the 2019 Artist of Life workbook and the Daily Planner by Lavender on my website, lavender.com shop. Lastly, you can catch me on YouTube and Instagram at Lavender, where I have even more content for the artist of life. Sending you so much love. Bye.